I moved to San Francisco in 67 from Fresno, where I had uh, eventually ended up in graduate school down there and got accepted to graduate school at San Francisco State in experimental psychology in a special program. They only took 12 students out of 1,200 applicants, and basically we wrote our own our own programs, and the most you ever had in that class was like six or seven. It's very interesting. But when I moved up here, I was still working in Fresno. I still had my job as a brakeman on the railroad. So I would commute back and forth from state, San Francisco State to Fresno for like Thursday through Monday. It's what, two, three hours? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's 210 miles in Fresno. Santa Fe was the railroad. Um, Well, Southern Pacific then. It was Southern Pacific then. Yeah, I was on the suffering Pacific. (laughs) And we treated your dad and his his, uh, Gandhi dancers nice when we went by them on the tracks. My dad was a fireman. He... um when I was a kid, you know, in the 50s, uh, on the schoolyard, you, people would ask, you know, what does your, your daddy do? You know, my dad works in the office, my dad works in the hardware store. One kid, you know, my dad's a fireman. I said, oh, yeah, my dad's a fireman, too. It's so cool, you know, he puts out fires. Mostly firemen were considered by the rest of the train crew as the guy who would, like, eventually wake up and remind the, the engineer it was his turn to fart. They used to to stoke the steam engines with coal. Wait, your dad actually shoveled coal? You bet. Yeah. And, you and on diesel? Not, not until about 1955 or 56. And because they didn't, they didn't use them. What he did is he didn't you know, do cross-country uh, travel. He did like uh, steam yards where they would like uh, move cars around to be attached to other trains. And... Right after he, you know, it was like after the war, uh, they went to diesel and he was like, basically became a co-pilot. But it sounded great to tell people in school my father was a fireman because they thought he was like some heroic guy saving people from burning buildings. I said, no, no, he doesn't put fires out, he starts them. It's like Fahrenheit 451, the fireman who burned the books. (laughs) It was unique, I mean... Where else did you have a chance to destroy hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment with a single stupid move, you know? It's uh, great. And and you're dealing with gigantic, monstrous pieces of equipment. You know, maybe 100 tons of sugar beets in a car, and you got 100 cars, and you're barreling at 60, 70 miles per hour down a track in the middle of the night, and somebody in Fresno has dosed you with acid. You're on your way to Bakersfield, and... and all aboard. So you were already into that scene before you moved out to San Francisco? Most people were. Yeah. Who were, who were brain alive, yeah. It was legal until 1966, 67. 66. I remember it was in the springtime. We, we used to have a, like a, a, a club in Fresno where you'd get together once a week on Wednesday night, and everybody would drop acid and have an evening together at this and read poetry and do shit and paint and... Suddenly it was going to become illegal, and everybody got very upset, and everybody was stocking up. Yeah. But it, was just, it just was an intrusion on something that was legal, but now it was illegal in California. It, it was like finding that your favorite shampoo, they're not going to be selling it anymore. So you go and just buy the stock out while you, 
while you can. Cary Grant was a big acid yeah. freak in the in the early sixties. He it was like a therapist, you know, had given it to him because it was like therapeutic uh, psychological. Yeah. No, Tim Leary gave him the goddamn acid. Tim chose. Well, he, he always been a therapist, you know, because he needed to. Well, Tim was a therapist of sorts. He, he well, I I was with Tim and we were on his uh, in his backyard one day, and he was looking over and he says, "That's Cary Grant's house over there." And I says, "Yeah." He says, "This is in Los Angeles." Yeah, this is in L.A. in Beverly Hills. And it was like the rim of a kind of a canyon. And I could barely make out that there were some kind of stick figures across the way. And Tim evilly ran in and got on his phone and dialed Carrie's number and then said, Carrie, I saw you were in your backyard. Carrie, of course, had to run in the house to answer the phone. Yeah. So he was always like pranking Carrie Grant. Yeah. Was there a marked change in the city when, when it became illegal? Well, I was in Fresno when it became illegal. Yeah. Uh, there's a marked change there about every 100, 200 years. Yeah, when the Okies finally arrived in Fresno, it was a big deal. Yeah. The Okie di- diaspora, as we call it. It's maybe a step up from Bakersfield. My father was a country and western disc jockey in Bakersfield. Yeah. Well, there's great. There's actually so we had, we had We had status. Yeah. Uh, he was. He went by the name of Tumbleweed Turner, and if I was lucky enough to be down in Bakersfield and get on one of his shows, I'd be introduced as Sagebrush, son of Tumbleweed. So, are you are you from Fresno? Uh, well, no, I came there in '45. Uh, we moved out when I was still four years old to wait for my father to get back from World War II from Wisconsin. So I grew up in in Fresno. However, Winston grew up in, uh, it's never been really clear, but uh, where was it, Oklahoma? Or Oklahoma is the original Bakersfield. They moved it, you know, back to the middle Are, of the country. You're from Oklahoma? I, well, I was born there. And then um, when, when I was uh, 17, I fled. I would have done it earlier, but I didn't want to get drafted. Um, but uh, I, I had an opportunity to leave the country, and I took it. He went to the Oklahoma of Europe. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I went to Florence, Italy, because it was so, Italy was so cheap then. You know, now people go, oh, Italy, wow, you must yeah. be rich. No, no, no. It was like $40, $50 a month rent. And for a, a, a three-course meal, it was like a dollar and a quarter, a dollar and a half. That's if you got fancy. For 50 cents, you'd have an entire fiasco of vino, you know, of Chianti. Why would you ever leave? Why would you ever leave? So I stayed from 1969 till 1976. I came to, to California. So about nearly seven years. Yeah. Why would I go back to anywhere, either like Oklahoma or even New York City? Nothing you know could top this. That changed my life entirely. It was also a good move at the right time. Unfortunately, I stupidly came back to America thinking that the prices were getting so high in, in Italy, I'll just yeah. go back to America where it's cheap. And I didn't realize that it was a global phenomena yeah. of global inflation everywhere. And, and here you are in the most expensive city in the country. It, San Francisco is the most yeah. expensive city than anywhere else, more than Manhattan. Yeah, I think Manhattan might be more, but it's only because Manhattan's ten times bigger than yeah. you know, San Francisco's only seven miles across. It's this tiny little, it's like an island, really. There's water on all three sides, and 
What was the idea with the experimental psychology degree? You wanted to be a psychologist? Yes. My expertise was basically in, I mean, uh, this program gave me ungodly amount of freedom to explore what I might want to find out. Yeah. But I also got hooked up in crazy, by many standards, kind of crazy experimental things. I got jobs. You, you had to live. We were talking about a time when LSD was being used as a sort of therapy. Yeah, we had people like on our staff, like uh, Ted Krober's son. Ted had been, his father had had Ishii, the last Indian. You know, we had a woman from McGill University that had the original LSD stuff going on. I mean, it was a very hip campus, and I met this guy, uh, Janos Kovac, and he and I divided up the marijuana sales in the psych department. He got the faculty, I got the students. And John was a gay guy. He ended up having a a, a bar on Haight Street, and that only ma- mainly served uh, gay cops and gay firemen. But then he had a um, some point he picked up a place called the House of Good, which was the Temple Beth Israel. His family had fled, had survived Auschwitz, and also fled Hungary. They were Hungarians, and uh, during the communist rule, they made their way out of. Hungry and ended up in New York with nothing. And the guy ended up being one of the big, his father, one of the biggest real estate magnets in the city. And their their synagogue was on Gary and uh, Fillmore, Temple Beth Israel. And they turned it into a place called House of Good or Temple Beautiful. We, we used to hold lots of uh, punk rock shows there, Rock Against Racism, RAR. In the late 70s. Temple, it was a beautiful... It was a synagogue converted into a venue? Yeah. Giannis's parents were very connected. but the ra- And they had moved to a new place, so it was empty. And, and the rabbi convinced the congregation that it was, he, he, could, he had a ceremony called a desanctification ceremony that he could do. So it wouldn't be like doing anything evil. In the, but there was a couple of guys. There was a guy that was already working a couple of girls off the street. And for an extra ten bucks, you could have sex in the Torah box. I don't know if you can desanctify a synagogue to that level. Are you taking the word of Jehovah in vain here? Anyway, um, unfortunately, it was next door to a a black Muslim place. And one Saturday morning, they came over and beat the shit out of all my friends there. And I I had had some history. I'd, I'd worked for a couple of years at a Muslim teacher training college in Sri Lanka. So I was kind of like caught between the bean pies and the uh, good weed, you know. We eventually worked out a truce and got somebody's... I remember we got Frank's jaw wired, and he was okay after that. Yash's brother was like... I think he was running the film department at Stanford at the time. And he did a movie on... (laughs) called 1968. And I, I made it as far as the... Previews. I was all over the previews, but I got cut out of the film. Janos and I were like cast as like these kind of aging hippies in the film, rocking around with uh, John Cipollina's bands playing in the background. And every time what we year would this have been that you were an aging hippie already? Mid mid late seventies. Okay. And Spain Rodriguez late Spain Rodriguez was yep. in the same film, only he, he played a motorcycle gang leader down on the waterfront with his motorcycle. But there was all these cops, and we had all these fake joints to act like we were, like, smoking. As soon as the director would say, cut, the cops would run down the hill and try to grab. And they always got the fake joints. 
It was great. You know, that was the problem. Exchanging the fake joints for the real ones is always a problem. That was no problem. You know, his brother Steve, Steve Kovacs, he, uh, his previous film had starred uh, Rock Hudson. It was called Avalanche. That sounds legitimate. That, that went quickly to the remainder bins, <laughs> I'll tell you. So. Yeah. But you met him at school. I was the... The, the parents loved me because they were always like cooking like spinach till it was dead. And I would eat it. And the boys would not have anything to do with their mom's cooking. So I kind of became a nice friend of the families. But at this point, you were still seriously pursuing psychology. No, Janos and I were in the same program. Yeah. And a thing called the San Francisco Student Strike happened in 68, 69. It was the longest student strike in U.S. history. Whereas no one in this program that we were in had ever not gone on and got a Ph.D., virtually no one went on after that year. Well, I, I don't remember the exact dates, but it went on for like seven, seven eight months, Winston. When school started, it was September, October, November, December. The Black Students' Union was uh, attacked the bookstore, and there, the state said there was, since they had never bought insurance for the, for the buildings of the campus because the premium was too high, that, oh, my God, how are we ever going to pay for the buildings to be done? So we did a, a group of us that drank coffee in the cafeteria, got called ourselves the non-organization, and we had a, a rally that we turned into a, uh, a revival. And I got to speak because somebody else had laryngitis, and I had them go take those three-pound Folger coffee tins out uh-huh. of the cafeteria. This is like one of the first big money pushes. We had all this money. We went to a, a faculty meeting invaded it with the faculty all saying, oh, no, we're being invaded. And we went up to the tables in the front and dumped all the money in front of all the staff. It was like piles of money. And we said, okay, you can stop the bullshit discussions because here's the money to pay for the damn damage. Goodbye. And when I got home that night, some of my roommates said, Ron, there's some people outside who want to talk to you. They <laughs> go outside and there's all the student activists. And they said, so what are we doing next? You suddenly overnight are the leader of this group. So then I said, well, there is no thing. We're, we're called the non-organization, and we quit. <laughs> we did what we did, and we yeah. quit. He said, you can't do that. So within a few months, I'm roommates with all these crazy people. And my roommate, Roger Alvarado, was head of the Third World Liberation Front. I'm getting my picture up in the, in the newspaper on the front page. And, you know, it's just, it was crazy for a long time. So... As a student, as a graduate student, you have a thesis advisor, which was our the chairman of our department. That was great, except that during the strike, I'd be flown up to argue the student's position at some campus, and my thesis advisor would be on the faculty side arguing against me. That did not lead to a good conclusion. So you were so I on w- the outs at that finally point? I Finally, I went on the outs, and that's when I began... Publishing Last Gasp. You were still a student at the time when he started yes, Last Gasp? Yes, I was still a student. I remember bringing the first comic book, Slow Death Funnies, which was a benefit book for the Berkeley Ecology Center, which is yeah. the first ecology center in the country, out to the campus to show people. And they were saying, like, Ron, you know, there's, there's white spaces here. You could have put a message in this thing. You know, I said, no. I said, this is not. So it was obvious. And then the second comic I did was an all-women's comic called It Ain't Me, Babe, and uh, things were changing rapidly then. And my girlfriend at the time was uh, had been Cesar Chavez's secretary, and she worked for the farm workers. I mean, there were so many groups that we were connected with. 
I mean, I said we, we train people for the Venceremos brigades to Cuba to do the sugarcane things, and we also sent people off to North Vietnam to visit. And I sent John. I never found out if John McCain ever got the stack of underground comics that I sent him in the prison. In, yeah, in in the Hanoi Hilton. Yeah. yeah. Fidel did get his stack, and he really loved Robert Crumb. How do you actually start doing that in earnest at that point? You know, obviously there was a big community. There were a lot of artists out here. Many of them were self-publishing at the time. You're busy being a relatively full-time student. How do you actually take the initiative and start the company? Well, again, there, there, there was never a cause that I didn't feel I needed to be part of. How would you have found the printers at the time? Only because when I did my own, own underground zine fallout in the late 1970s, it was a, a, a struggle to yeah. lo- locate people who would print it because they'd look at it and say, oh, this is all smut, yeah. you know, or this is like nonsense, and or they'd charge us way too much. And we finally found the, the people who did uh, the Bay Guardian and Maxim Rock and Roll uh, were fine with it. Yeah. And, and uh, so I'm just wondering what, what happened at that time. Printing is very, it's important because when you do your first thing, you learn about 80% of everything you're ever going to yeah. need to know. Yeah. Of course, we went. There, there was already people publishing comic books. Uh, Zap was being published yeah. by uh, Charles Plymel had a printing press, an A.B. Dick, that he'd gotten from Allen Ginsberg on a on a on a grant. Robert Crumb's books were being published on a printing press from Allen Ginsberg. Allen Ginsberg gave this printing press to this beat poet, and he went and. And um, he had known Don Donahue, who was a Cal student, St. Ignatius High School kid from San Francisco, in the beatnik poetry scene. And they discussed this cartoonist named Robert Crumb that they'd seen in the Philadelphia Underground Press yeah. called Robert Crumb. It, it was in Yellow Starks. And they said, wouldn't it be great to do his artwork? And they said, yeah, yeah, because they mostly were publishing poetry broadsides. They were set up in the building at 2180 Bryant, where I later went in. I've got to talk to I know seven supervisors now out of the 11, so I've got to talk to them about making that a historical you know, get a plaque for that building where the first zap was printed. Anyway, Charles Plymel was he's maybe the last of the beat poets maybe except for Diane de Prima and of that era. Fairly Getty's still around. Yes, I, I just had a drink with him oh, wow. two days ago. He's 98. He's still sharp? He's very sharp, but he really can't see. His beautiful blue eyes are still twinkling, but I don't think he can see you. Yeah. So they came into this printing press. They were using that to print Zap. Yes, and th- my first cover was um, Donahue bought that from. If you look at the, if you ever get the chance to see original Zap comics, the first one thousand covers were done on that press by Charles Plymel, and it will say printed by Charles Plymel. Donahue was really the publisher, and his company was Apex Novelties. The second 1,000, the first 1,000, I think, were 25 cents. The second 1,000 may have still been 25. Not sure that they went to 35 or not. But the back will say, printed by Don Donahue. So that's how you know whether you have a $10,000 comic yeah. book or a $3,000 comic book. It goes down pretty fast. You know, and that, the artwork for these guys has finally hit the... Hit the bell at the... Yeah, for, for those who are still around to actually cash in on it. Well, no, but it's, it's the people who bought stuff earlier. It's yeah. like a Robert Crumb draw, uh, cover art for Fritz the Cat, which was not an underground thing. It came out from Ballantine Books. 
just sold for $717,000. A four-page story out of uh, High Tone Comics went for $212,000, so that's $50,000 a page. Did you hold on to any of the stuff? Are you well, able to? Yeah, yeah, I've got some of it, but unfortunately over the years I've had to sell off a few things to uh, pay those pesky employees and creditors. Yeah. You know? We were getting at how you actually came into being able to print this thing. So we had this idea. A bunch of us would sit down and smoke dope and try to figure out what the hell was going on in the culture. Ecology. It was a big word then, and not everybody knew what it meant. But we thought, like, well, in this, in the education system, and we were all kind of like uh, wannabe propagandists, so we were, like, thinking about how does this work. And so we thought, if you went to the middle school teens who were always being browbeaten or dismissed by their elders... Yeah. If we gave them some ammunition, maybe they could, like, say, no, did you know this or that? You're talking about infecting America's youth with your crazy exactly. ideas. Exactly, as, as our youth was infected by EC Comics. But to sort of be, in a way, what maybe Mad Magazine was to you. So the idea was really to print something that could get into the hands of the younger print generation? Print something that was interesting enough yeah. that somebody would actually pay money for. Yeah. And so that the Ecology Center could make some money. And, I mean, I was going to be done with it, right? So, we, so this was really, it was fundraising still at this point. Absolutely. I mean, on my bucket list is to go to some fucking event that's not a fundraiser. At that point, you were still a student at the time, but you knew some local artists. You solicited I, them. I had pretty much given up the student part at that okay. point. You were I, still enrolled. I was enrolled, but I was also uh, working at Kaiser Hospital doing studies in allergies and emotions. And that was coming to a big end because Nixon was cutting off all the science funds yeah. to help pay for the Vietnam War. You know, the phone lines always click kind of funny when you answered a call. And you were thinking about your future at the time? I thought of maybe going back to Germany and studying at the Goethe Institute and getting my German completed. And maybe going off to Alaska or somewhere and getting a PhD there and getting away from all you, of it. You just wanted to get out of the country at the time, it sounds like. I was the first one in my family to go to college. I had that kind of like push behind you, like, how, how are you, you know, my uncles in their Oshkosh overalls back in yeah. Wisconsin were sure I was going to UCLA and play football and win this, you know, the Rose Bowl. And they were so proud of me because they were all working, working class people. Those are pretty high expectations. I mean, they, and for you to actually just slowly fade away must have been very disappointing. Depends on how far that foots up your ass, you know. It's just kind of like, just didn't get the, they said like, you're going to go do this. And then they would like push you. You didn't feel any pressure because you were the first in your family to really follow they, through? They had no idea. They, you know. I was the first in my family to be a dropout. So I had, I had no pressure. I thought you were the first to be circumcised. Yes, I actually, well, my brother was a couple years ahead of me. We made the effort. It hurt like hell, but it was worth it. Because now I go to heaven and you don't. I'm sorry, how old were you at the time? 30. Are these the sorts of things when you got you guys were drinking earlier today? These are the things you talk about when you get together? No, tonight's been very personal. So you start doing this as a fundraiser. How do you make the transition into actually seriously pursuing publishing? In order to get it printed, we had to pay for the two things. We had to pay for the artists. So I had meetings with all the artists and asked them, what's a fair price to be published? They told me. Okay. Then I extrapolated, how many do we have to print in order for this to be like a 50-cent comic book? And given that you had to sell it for like 30 cents or 
20 cents to the retailer or the distributor and then figure out the cost of printing it. Where did the cost go down by the number you printed? So it was basically worked out to be about, you had to print 20,000 copies to make it worthwhile. But it was okay because I had gone around to the drug dealers I knew in Berkeley and kind of strong-armed them and said, what have you done for your community? What have you given back? Oh, we have health food stores in Chile, record stores. No, asshole, that makes money. What have you done to give to the back to the people? Well, was, look, I don't want you to give me money. I want you to loan me money. You'll get it back. So in no uncertain terms, your earliest works were funded by... Berkeley drug dealers. Pressuring Berkeley drug dealers. Yes. And it worked. Well, you can't use the same techniques on the banks today, but it's the same deal. Yeah. They got paid back, by the way. Yeah. They got bailed out, yeah. Uh, but when, when does this actually turn from, again, being, being a fundraiser into being... I mean, it's how many 40... 50 years later and you're still doing it how did it actually become a career i realized that they're not going to look at me when i go down to the uh office in some place and ask for an employment application you must have enjoyed it if you wanted to pursue it oh yeah it's it's been a, a, a crazy ride yeah i wouldn't give it up for anything i mean i met people like winston through there yeah there's a place called the mitchell brothers o'farrell theater it was a porn place and i somehow got to know Jimmy and Artie Mitchell, and some of the girlfriends of the people that worked there had a group called the Nicolettes. Now, there was a there was the Rockettes, and then there was a San Francisco group called the Cockettes, which was a gay kind of group. And then the Nicolettes were kind of playing on that, and then Jimmy and Artie would give us the theater at night to hold these kind of uh, reviews. So you have people like on roller skates in the islands and, and people from all the local. Vince Stanich was the projectionist, and his buddies from the other theaters would bring by their first-run movies. We'd show them till dawn. And I got to work the candy counter because I, I grew up in, in, theater, in the theater business. My dad, before he became a country and western disc jockey, was a had theaters around the San Joaquin Valley. We had tent theaters, and we had like we used to take movies out to the labor camps to show Mexican movies and shit. It was a crazy life. Anyway, but I felt most at home behind a candy counter in there. And I, when I'd worked on the railroad, I had a heat exhaustion in Antioch one time, and I spent three days in the Antioch Community Hospital before this Santa Fe fired me. Because of that, Jimmy and Artie and all the close people at the O'Fara were all from Antioch. So I had like an in, I got to be part of the inner circle because I'd spent three days there helping a few people die of cancer while I was recovering from my heat exhaustion. And so anyway, so the Nicolette started, and I ended up being on their board of directors. And we used to play at various venues, like uh, nearby here, almost around your corners, there's the Condor. Yeah. And one night... It's literally the, across the street. Literally across the street, the... Nicolette's all ran in there in brownie uh, scout uniforms, went up and took over the stage and did a performance. And then and other times there was this guy I knew. I knew this guy, Nez Aquino. He used to have a Filipino restaurant. And I knew him because all the Filipinos lived down here at the International Hotel. And I'd known a whole bunch of them because down in Delano at the farm workers and all that, we'd gotten to be friends with Larry Itliong and all these farm workers and my 
girlfriend had been a big supporter. We used to have him over for dinner all the time. So that guy went into business with Dirk Dirksen, and Dirk, they opened up his restaurant, finished there, and opened up down Broadway called the Mabuhai. It was a, an old Filipino restaurant. You could go in there and get fried chicken and, you know, all kinds of different foods. Lumpia. And they would have, sometimes they would have four shows of different acts, you know, different things. And sometimes the acts were, like, got pretty rowdy. They were, um, I recall the first time I went there with a bunch of friends, we were all having dinner. They were all from Italy. The, the, the wine that they ordered was so bad they couldn't drink it. But Layla and the Snakes performed, and they were the backup singers of the Tubes, which I was roadie for at the time. And it was, you know, so they enjoyed themselves. The food was terrible, but it was a restaurant, and then later on it became punk rock mecca. It was a punk club that they got rid of all the tables and they got rid of the food. You got beer and uh, popcorn. Around this time, I began to see some flyers by uh, some nutcase named Winston Smith. I'm, I'm not familiar. <laughs> what year and, are we talking about? Oh, I don't know, 80s, somewhere in there. Okay. You were working with Jello already at that point? I met Biafra either a week before New Year's Day 1980 or a week after, somewhere, you know, just, you know, during the Christmas uh, thing there. So maybe it was a week after 1980 New Year's. I wound up getting to the Mabuhi Gardens by, you know, as a, a friend of a friend said, hey, you got to come. Because I did artwork for the Rock Against Racism. And we did artwork for uh, not just the shows and posters, but also the newspaper that they put out. And she kept on saying, you know, you think just like my friend. I said, oh, who's that? It was my friend Biafra. He has this band called Dead Kennedys. And I went, uh, well, maybe he's crazy because if he thinks like me. So finally she brought home. And because home his a, name is Jello Biafra. Uh, yeah, he, he, she brought home a 45 uh, California Uberales. And we put, oh, damn, that's good. You know, it's a good deal better than some of the punk's music that was available at the time. You know, it was all punk music was, was uh, not so much the music, it was the performance. Yeah. So you really had to be there. If you hear it on a record or a tape, it's not the same thing. But to see it and actively participate, it was like vaudeville. Vaudeville, you know, the old vaudeville, you know. People would do silly things and make fools themselves, and they had fun. And that, that was what it was all about. It was, it was not the mega, giant, stadium, rock star thing that had been happening up till then. And so they were trying to bring it back to the people. I think Biafra and I went out that night around 3 in the morning after the show closed and I got there so late, I didn't see any of the performance. I just headed back to the back of the bar so I could get a beer before they closed. And we went out till three or four, you know, trying to find someplace to forage for food. And that's when he saw my artwork and wanted to use it for many, many more Dead Kennedy records. So that's when we became partners in crime. You were already heavily steeped in collage at the time? Oh, definitely. I've been doing that for years. Yeah. And uh, suddenly... All the work that I had been doing up till then suddenly became relevant because there was a way to get it out to the public. Were you able to survive as an artist before you hooked up with Jello? Surviving was a matter of like, uh, I, had, I had a studio that I paid $50 a month for, which I was lucky at the time to have it. You know, that was like in 1978 yeah. or so. In 70, um in 76 and 77, I paid $80 a month rent in San Francisco. So 
So that, that shows you how much the incredible inflation has happened since then, that you could actually survive on a couple hundred bucks a month in those days, but not anymore. Now, that's what you'd spend if you went out for an evening, didn't even buy champagne. It, it, it's been a struggle ever since. It's been, uh, it's, I've never known when it wasn't a struggle. Artists do what they do anyway, because whether you pay them or not, in fact, they're willing to do it for free. Yeah. And of course, they're taken advantage by people, of people, by people. They're taken advantage of, of that because they know, oh, you'll tap dance, you'll whistle, penny whistle. They, they talk about it now a lot in terms of exposure. Yeah. This will be good exposure it, 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 for you. But if you don't get, they, they told me that for years and they said it'll be good exposure. And I thought, if I get any more exposure, I will die of exposure. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, that, that's the life of an artist. I'm in New York. I do a reporting job that I can really theoretically do from wherever. The question that I ask myself regularly that I know certainly all of my artist friends ask is, is there still enough value in living in a city that's this expensive? It's very punishing if you're um, if you if you have the if you're able to take the lashing, you know. Okay, but most people, why should they take the lashing for yeah. that? But, mean, but you at least have a business here. I have a business here, but I also was was lucky enough to buy some property. Otherwise, we would have been gone. But, but that's why I bought property because I already yeah. said, like, why have I bought this building three times for my you know landlord? What has he ever done in my business that allows me to pay this exorbitant money? It's crazy. So that was fortuitous. But it was when we moved here and when I first started, I first came here in like 48, 49 with my dad. I was eight, nine years old. Well, it's just very hard for people. And why should they spend an incredible amount of their energy just to pay everybody else for their right to be in, in a cool place? Yeah. And I think it ain't cool. It may not be cool anymore. We're living on borrowed time, and it's time for other places to get cool. Like right now, I think if people move down to South San Francisco, it would be a great place, a great little town, town street. Things are cool. Rents aren't too bad. They're bad, but they're not too bad. Yeah. But California itself has got like, it's going to have, in the next 20 years, we'll have another 20 million people living here. And they've only got plans to build about four or five million residences. So what's that going to do to the rents and the housing and shit? Where are we going to put the people? It's crazy. It's just really stupid. It's not just the rents. It's the aesthetic beauty of the city that yeah. used to be beloved and for its you know unique beauty, which is now turning into downtown Tokyo. Nothing against people who live in Tokyo. Everyone's got to live somewhere, so you got to live somewhere. But there are places now in the city that are just blocks and blocks and blocks of slabs, slabs of glass and chrome, and people are paying six and seven thousand dollars a month to live in what would otherwise be considered minimum security prisons. That is a one room bed. There's a, a big wall screen TV because there's no view out the window. And the bathroom's about as big as what you have on the airplane. The kitchen is basically just a, a slab with a sink in it and room for a microwave. But as you said, a, an artist who's struggled to get by for decades now, what's keeping you in San Francisco? Rent control. <laughs> My wife and I, you know, have an old, old place that's a hundred and 
111 years old house. But the thing is, it's not like, oh, that's an old, nice, antique house. No, it's just an old hunk of junk. You know, it's an old, old house that never got replaced since the earthquake. And, and our landlord lives right next door, and he's not a very nice cat at all. He has been looking for anything he can to get us out. So we have to be super groovy all the time. But they would love to demolish the entire house. And that Do you find that there's enough of that art and culture left in the city to really keep you oh, engaged? Yes. No, there is. Yeah. There is. There's plenty of... I mean, the, the trouble is they've, they've made it so that musicians who um, need to go to a place to rehearse are, have been priced out of San Francisco. All those people got moved to Oakland or, or further east, and some now Oakland's inaccessible. So there used to be giant rehearsal places, so that meant all these different bands could rehearse and perform, and now they can't. So the people that moved to San Francisco in order to be in a hip place that had all this cool, groovy music, now they, because they all moved there, that music can't exist because the musicians can't afford to live here. It's, um, what did Mark, Mark Twain said, uh, something about, um, uh, about the phenomena of, uh, no, no, what Mark Twain, I'm quoting Yogi Berra. <laughs> Yogi, Yogi Berra said, yeah, Mark Twain, Yogi Berra. <laughs> but Yogi Berra said, he had a, uh, uh, I've seen the sign, I think it's over Specs, and it says, nobody ever goes there anymore. It's always too crowded. Ron, you had to make the difficult decision last year to end distribution. Yes, um, that's because we could continue distribution if we had the insane large numbers of people. I used to ex- try to explain to people that uh, at the end of a month, if we sold a, a certain amount of sales, it really didn't matter what kind of discounts we gave or whatever, because we're going to be making money on whatever else we shoved through the hole. They couldn't understand it. I said, well, it's because all the fixed costs have been covered completely. And now it's just down to the basic amount of the cost of a book you're selling, and maybe you got it for like $4, and you're... So if you get back $4 on it, instead of like 8 or 10 or $12, you're going to be making money. And even if you don't, you're clearing stock out, and you're moving things, and they're going to buy something else that you're actually making money on, and it's worth it. So you just keep selling. Well, that's Amazon understands that principle very well. So does Baker and Taylor, who are the big, big distributors, and, and Ingram... They've cornered the distribution market in terms of the quantity of sales. So even though we cherry-picked the, what I think was maybe the greatest offerings of books yeah. throughout the, the world and brought it to people, and our people really loved it and understood it, the quantity of things we had to sell was not enough to maintain what we were doing. So we had to, like, stop that. Because we were losing money for the last seven years. I would expect that given the way technology generally goes with these things, that over time the price to distribute would lower over time. It's the volume. It goes down as long as your fixed costs are covered. So you can't have a, a, a decline. It always has to be in the upswing. So a lot of people in distribution don't even get into that level of understanding but it's all ratio economics. It has nothing to do with... Uh, a guy named Stevens had a 
thing called how things work number-wise, and there was nominal ordinal interval ratio. So nominal is like... But it literally comes down to people just not reading and therefore not buying as much as they used to. Oh, no. Readers still read. It's just where they read. Now they're reading off a screen. Yeah. But people not buying books the way they used to. I think people are reading more than they used to. I'm not sure they're understanding why they're doing that, other than they feel pressed to read more, to try to understand more, because they're becoming conflicted by all the information that's available to them. There's a principle called chunking, and I don't mean the Chinese food brand. It's like after you get like six or seven possible categories, you chunk things together into one thing. And so you can understand this stuff as long as you keep chunking. Well, people are in that problem now is that they don't know when to call a halt to the availability of what they're seeing and get another category so they can categorize all these little categories. Yeah. And, and that's what's going on right now. You must have seen this coming for a long time. Oh, yeah. Well, I think I saw it. But it hasn't affected the, the publishing wing in the same way? Well, sure. Uh, things you used to be able to publish all the time, like, for instance, like drug books. Yeah, you'd be an idiot if you passed, if you tried to publish a drug book right now, because the idea was originally why that was important was nobody would see what you were, they had no access to the information. Yeah. So if you were serious about growing, or at least you thought you were at some point, you get all the how to grow books. Just maybe even in each book, there'd be one idea you could use, maybe more. But now, you can get all that crap online. You don't need to have your own library of that stuff. And you can talk with somebody you could, on a blog or something and discern whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. Or one of our books, we had like quarter million sales in like How to Grow Pot in Your Closet. You know, it's a great book. But if I brought that out today and nobody had ever seen that book, we'd be very lucky to sell 1,000 copies. Given the state of the publishing side of things, of, of what you're doing, um, do you think there's going to continue to be enough interest to sustain that for the foreseeable future? Oh, to sustain publishing? Oh, yes. Specifically to sustain the sort of specialty publishing you do. It's like the San Francisco Chronicle is one of these few newspapers. Actually, because they've kept a great amount of good writing and interest, there's enough people that are willing to pay for the privilege of actually reading it in a newspaper and looking it up online if they want to read it later or whatever. That's always a really interesting model, too, is using the people who will pay for something to subsidize everything else. But you're not really, given that you're primarily a print publisher, you can't really operate on the same model. Well, no, we can't operate on that model, but we have to do something that is not available. And a lot of the things we do are art books, which don't look great on small monitors, especially on screens of cell phones yeah so on that stuff we can like at least get like large format books and show people things however the ability of someone to say whether or not they've actually seen and understood the art has diminished because people now say look at something very quickly and say yeah i saw it you know it's like they're tipping the screen left for their next date with intelligence and they're not finding anybody. One of the appeals to me of zines has always been this idea of finding something that, you know, very few people knew about, you know, finding a little a pocket, a little subculture. I'm from Fremont originally, so I'm from a very suburban area and I used to come out to, to Berkeley 
or San Francisco and start buying up these zines. But subculture doesn't exist in the same way anymore. No. You know, you can just go online and research everything about a certain topic. So the idea that you're finding something really special and specific doesn't exist the way that it used to. Well, yes, but that, and again, I find all kinds of wonderful things still in the zine world and whatnot. I go to these little conventions, and there's, and my mind's blown, and yeah. I see people still kind of like clawing their way out of obscurity to tell their story and show their in- interest. But I think it's my uh, abilities to do that may not be being passed along to the, in the general publishing, so I don't know. What's keeping you doing this is that there's so there's, much there's, good there's, stuff out there that there's, you... There's a need. I have a lot of musicians and bands on the show, and when they're starting out, that's the double-edged sword they talk about is it's easier to get your work out there than it ever was before, but the downside of that is that is the signal-to-noise ratio. Everybody has the same access to the, uh, the fire hoses as everyone else, so um, in a sense, theoretically, it should be easier for artists to get their work out into the world than ever before. But there's still a need for a company like Last Gas to promote them. Yes, and I wish we were like bigger and broader and more funded and whatnot. Yeah. So many people need that vision and that availability and that recognition uh i you know artists and and musicians good god kids um, yeah. if you get a job selling shoes don't sniff your nose at it it may actually feed you so are you still there every single day uh i can make it to the toilet if that's what you mean are you running the day-to-day operations the same no, way you always no have? no my son did okay. a palace coup some years ago yeah so colin turner if you have any problems with the last guest contact yeah. colin turner at Colin at lastgas.com. He'll be very happy to uh, deal with all of your problems. You're going to be involved in the company for as long as you're walking around and able to talk? Yeah, until they change the keys on me. (laughs) What about you, Winston? You feel like you're going to keep making art the way you are now until you, you keel over? I have no choice. I, I have I have no I've already keel over and and also I have no other marketable skills. And I don't know how to do anything else, and um, I didn't know I was even going to be around this long. If I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm still, that's it. We're, 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 I'm still battling with different musicians, but mainly um, as long as people appreciate art and appreciate satire and appreciate social commentary, I think, work like mine and the work of many many other people especially i'm saying collage artists but you know all obviously people such as todd shore who they can take pen to paper pen to canvas and illustrate things that i would never ever ever be able to think about my version of art as Although I can draw, you know, I, I went to the Academy of Fine Arts in Florence and learn, you know, Renaissance history, and I can draw like Raphael if I have to, but uh, not quite. Mainly, I like to cut up other people's pictures and glue them to some other people's pictures and then make rude remarks about them behind their backs, usually when they're dead, safely dead, um, but... Also, I'm trying to reinterpret 
American American consumer culture into what is now here. They used to tell us, you know, when we were kids, and I was born in 1952, so in the 50s they'd tell us, oh, yeah, in the future you're all going to have, like, anti-gravity boots and, you know, flying cars and all this other horse shit. It never happened. Nothing ever happened, actually. Your kid gets up and goes to the same school, decrepit school, that on the same decrepit yellow school bus that you went to 35 or 40 years ago. And that's what's happening. All that, the, the, the money and, and whatever goes to investigation goes into an opposite side of the universe, which is, you know, we're not in touch with. That means like Washington, D.C. Or, or corporate America, where they simply just skim off everything and we pay for $400 hammers and, and instead of like good education for children or health care for all, which we should have like every other country in the world. Every other industrial major country has health care for all. They have national health. There's no reason why it can't happen here except that the insurance companies don't want it to and the Republicans don't want it to. So now that we have Brother uh, Trump in the White House, it's going to be an uphill crawl. But even if we don't win, we're not going to go down without a fight. There again, that's Ron Turner and Winston Smith live on tape from Cafe Vesuvio in North Beach in San Francisco. Really fun conversation. Big surprise in a number of ways, not the least of which is the fact that I was actually only expecting to interview Ron. Set up the conversation with him and I was sitting upstairs. If you've ever been to Cafe Vesuvio in San Francisco, you know that it's a narrow bar right across the Jack Kerouac Alley from city lights and there's there's a really large upstairs area so sitting up there waiting for him to come by and a another gentleman stopped in and and said hello that he was a friend of ron's and handed me the last gasp catalog we started talking for a little while and he told me he was an artist and slowly it dawned on me who it was so i figured hey get two very fascinating individuals for the price of one thanks so much to them for taking the time to do that thanks to janelle for helping set up that conversation thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program if you like the show please consider rating us over on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts like us on facebook shoot us an email if you've got any feedback it's rolcast at gmail.com follow us on tumblr that's rolcast.tumblr.com that is the first and best place to get all of your riyl related information that's about all i got so stick around because we'll be back just about this time next week with another episode of riyl